Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It reminds me so much of <clears throat> a friend that I'm getting to know hanging out at Starbucks in Turlock where I live. And as I've gotten to know him, what an amazing guy he is. He's so kind and so good. And um, I don't think he knows the Lord. He grew up religious, but I don't think he knows the Lord. But the two issues that I've gotten to know him, as I've gotten to know him, that I've seen in his life and have observed about the way he thinks is, one, one of the things is that he <clears throat> seems to believe that his hope is in hopefully doing enough good in his life so that he'll be accepted and saved. Hoping that the good he's done in life is good enough for God. That's one part of his belief set. That his beliefs are on other ground, which is sinking sand. And the second thing that I've noticed about him is that he really struggles with what he's seen in the church, how money is spent, how people treat each other. And it's profound to me that here, the, the scripture we're gonna be studying in Acts 11, to those issues he's dealing with and to us as Jesus's people are just as relevant today, 2,000 years later. Like, just as relevant, every bit as relevant to our life and our belief. I want you to open up there to Acts 11. Here's the setting. Peter, who's a Jewish man who loves Jesus and who's a Christian, um, he and a, and a Gentile man who hasn't been converted to Judaism, is not circumcised, they're, they're, he would be considered by most Jews as unclean. They both have these visions. This is what Kyle preached on last week. They both have visions that brought them together so that Cornelius and his family could hear the gospel of Jesus. Peter went, he preached, and this Gentile household believed in Jesus and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter, a Jew and apostle who had been called to the house of Israel, the Jews, is now commissioned by God to be an instrument in the inclusion of the Gentiles that not just Jews would be included in the good news and the blessings of Jesus, but also Gentiles, probably like most of us in this room are. And for the leader of the Jesus movement, Peter, in Israel, to do ministry to Gentiles is a large statement of God's intentions for his church. Now, Peter has come back to Jerusalem, and in chapter 11, he's reporting on what happened, and he receives some pushbacks from some of the Jews that heard about him going and being with and sitting at a table and eating with Gentiles. Now, we could easily look at this chapter and say, ah, this is kind of a, a darker story. This is an unfortunate story in the life of the early church. We could cast it in a dark light, but I think that would be a mistake. To think that this was an unfortunate moment in the life of the early church, I see this passage rather as a beautiful story of the Holy Spirit, both advancing the gospel of Jesus and strengthening the unity of the church in their understanding of the gospel and in their love for each other. So I wanna explore kind of two streams, one's a major, one's a minor, out of this one river of Acts 11. 
Acts 11 has these two streams that come out of it. The first stream, the most major stream, is the incredibly good news of the gospel of Jesus, that it is for everyone, everyone, everywhere, at all times. There is not a person on the planet that is excluded from the good news of Jesus. That's, that's one stream. The second stream is this. How the family of God unifies around that gospel, that good news, even and especially when there's disagreement. I think we see both of these things happening here in this passage. Let's get into it. Acts 11.1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. There's these Jewish Christians living in Israel who have given their lives to Jesus. And they've heard about Peter's ministry with the Gentiles, and a group of them labeled the circumcision party. Now, some scholars believe it was just a group of them. Some people believe because of the way the, the grammar is, it's just those of the circumcision. It was all the Jews back in Jerusalem were like, hey, Peter, what are you doing? It doesn't matter. At least a group of the people, when Peter comes back and says, I went and ate with Gentiles, and I was with them, and I shared a table with them, and I was in their home, they say, Peter, what are you doing? These are people, these Jewish Christians are people who sincerely love Jesus at great cost to themselves. They have said Jesus is the Messiah. This was not a popular belief in Israel. These people love Jesus, but they are still somehow under the impression that the way to Jesus was by converting to Judaism first. They kind of view Judaism as the lobby to Christianity. Like you have to get into this room, you have to come through a lobby well, you got to become a Jew first, circumcise your kids, convert to Judaism, follow the law, and it's then, after walking into that lobby, you can step into the room of Jesus and Christianity. That seems to be how these people are thinking. Either that, or that Jesus and the church were merely just the next chapter of God's salvation for the Jewish people alone. Now, before we're too hard on them, before we critique them too much, don't forget that the apostle Peter seems to have been of this same mindset right before God commanded him to share the gospel with Cornelius and his family. Peter, the apostle, didn't seem to have fully understood God's intentions for the church to be just much wider than Jews. It seems that he was still of the impression that he shouldn't go and be with Gentiles. You see, on our side, you and me in this room and at home, our side of the book of Acts, we see the idea of the gospel of Jesus being for all people everywhere, just as a matter of fact. Of course, we've heard that our whole lives, that the gospel is for everyone. But don't forget that over the centuries, God has revealed his will to his people progressively. He's never dumped all truth or all of his plan on all people all at once. It's been step by step by step, something that theologians call progressive revelation. He reveals himself and truth progressively over time. And so here in the early church, they hadn't realized all that had been done with what Jesus did on the cross and resurrection and ascension. 
And this story we're reading today is one further step in God revealing his will to his people. Now, their specific critique is this. Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And some of us in our culture might say, well, what's the big deal with eating with someone who doesn't think like you or isn't from the same background? What's the big deal? But in their culture, it was a big deal. In first century Israel, eating was a sign of fellowship, of living life together, that those whom I associate with at a table says something about who I am, what I believe, and what I do. And so if you're eating at a table with Gentiles, chances are you share their practices, their diet, their sinful behavior. And so these people in Jerusalem, when Peter comes back and reports, they have some legitimate questions to ask. Not to mention, Peter, what food did you eat while you were eating with the Gentiles? Did you stay kosher? Or did you have some bacon on that burger? Peter, did you honor the law that God has given to the Jews while you were there? And so a legitimate question arises. I think it's a very legitimate question. These Jews in Israel saying, now that we have Jesus and we realize he's the Messiah, are we throwing out the law that was given to Israel in the old covenant? Are we throwing that away? Are we still following it? Are we just kind of, whenever it suits us? Peter, what's our practice? Did you break the law or is there something we don't understand? This is a legitimate critique of Peter's actions if you haven't yet fully realized the universal effect that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension has had. This is a legitimate question. Let's keep reading, verse four. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and then trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. Please don't think this is just about the food. This is about people. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call unclean. Peter says in verse 10, this happened three times and all was drawn up into heaven again. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction don't treat them as Jews typically treat Gentiles. These six brothers, he brought six people with him, also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And all of the Jews in Jerusalem <gasps> gasped. You went into his house? Everything in there is unclean by the Jewish law. 13, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So you and all your household, not only is just Cornelius's individual, like his immediate family, a household in these days included your immediate family, perhaps your extended family, and definitely your servants, your attendants, those who worked for you. 
So not only this visit is crossing, crossing racial lines, but socioeconomic lines. All kinds of lines and barriers are being broken. Peter says, as I began to speak, he didn't even get to finish, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us. Who? Us? The Jewish Christians at the beginning. He fell on them, the Gentile Christians, Gentile believers, in the same way that he fell on us, Jewish Christians, at the beginning. The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles as Peter was speaking. This is an important detail. Peter was not the one who made the transaction. Peter did not lay his hands on them or even pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. They believed in Jesus as he was speaking and the Holy Spirit immediately filled them. Peter did not make this transaction happen. Who did? God. So amazing. And not only that, but the Gentiles' reception of the Holy Spirit was identical to that of the Jewish believers in the beginning, Acts 2. Identical. Just the same. No distinction. The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit in just the same way that Jewish believers had received the Holy Spirit. So I want to say this to you. If it's the same gift of the Holy Spirit who is the seal of our salvation, it's the same status. Same gift, same status. Equality. Gentiles are shown to be fully included in the blessings of Jesus. Inclusion for these Gentiles is seen outside of the old covenant law. They weren't circumcised. They didn't follow the Jewish law. They had never converted to Judaism. They received the full blessing of Jesus outside of the law. That's a very important point. They did not receive the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Jesus by doing works of the law, but by trusting in Jesus. They went straight from being lost pagans to being saved brothers and sisters. This act of God in giving the Holy Spirit directly to Gentiles without entering through the lobby of Judaism was a complete game changer in the theology of the early church. But it was not only this act of the Holy Spirit. When Peter says next, what he says next, shows us the foundation for his change of heart and mind. Look what he says in verse 16. So he's seen these, he's preaching. He's seen these Gentiles filled with the Holy Spirit as he's talking, just by believing. And then he says this, and I remembered the word of the Lord. Who's the Lord? Say it, Jesus. He's saying the Lord Jesus. And I remembered the word of Jesus, how he said, and this is from Acts 1.5. We've already read it a little bit ago. Acts 1.5, Jesus says this, John baptized with water, but you, remember that, he says you, what does that mean, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Spirit, not spirits, Holy Spirit, there's one. If then, this is, lean in. If then God gave the same gift to them, Gentiles, as he gave to us, Jewish believers, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's the best possible 
reaction Peter could have had. And please don't miss the reality of where Peter was when God called him to do this. Peter was in Joppa. I think Kyle talked about this last week. Peter's in Joppa. This is the same city that if you remember the story of Jonah, interesting that Peter's dad's name was Jonah, Peter bar Jonah, Simon bar Jonah. Anyway, that's nerdy stuff, forget that. Joppa, that's the same city that when Jonah was told to go to the Ninevites, Jonah went to Joppa to sail the exact opposite way, to run from God's command, to take the good news. Actually, it was bad news, but bad news that hopefully would turn into good news to Nineveh. He ran the opposite way. Peter's in Joppa, and when the Holy Spirit says to him, go to Cornelius and his family, what does he do? He immediately goes. He does not stand in the way of God and what he's doing. What an ironic difference that I think Luke really intended for us to see here by specifically labeling that Peter was in Joppa. He remembered the word of the Lord. Peter's basis of belief was the word of Jesus attested to by the work of the Holy Spirit in that order. He remembered the words of God, Jesus himself. Remember what we read earlier? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made that have been made. Who's that word? Who's John talking about? Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. And so Peter is remembering the word of the word of God. Peter's mind goes to God's word, and then he sees how the Holy Spirit is confirming what God has already said in his word by the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's Peter's logic. If God is giving Gentiles the Holy Spirit, the same as he is giving the Holy Spirit to the Jews, I have no right to resist. I, Peter, am not the giver of salvation and the Holy Spirit. Trust in Jesus alone results in the giving of the Spirit across ethnic lines. And no man can tell God what he can and can't do. Church, we do not get to tell God what he can and can't do, who he can and can't save. That's above our pay grade. This should greatly embolden our disciple-making as disciples of Jesus ourselves, How often we believe the lie that certain people are unreachable. Well, God can save, but not them. Well, yeah, but not, no, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Don't tell God who he can and can't save, whether with your mouth or by your inaction. I'm not talking to that person because God can't do anything for them. No. Yes, he can. God can save anybody. Don't tell God who he can and can't save. Some of us growing up in the church, for some of us, this truth of this scripture can seem like old news. The truth that Jesus extends salvation to all people everywhere, regardless of ethnicity and religious upbringing and all those things, can seem to us like, well, of course he does. Like, well, duh. But for so many people in our world, and right around us, this jump from salvation and earning it by following laws and rules, jumping from that to salvation by grace in through faith, Jesus alone, 
it's not only hard to understand, but it's a very costly move. It's very costly to believe that. Just this week, I was talking with some friends of mine here at the church, and they have befriended some um, refugees from Afghanistan who are Muslim. And they were invited to this party to celebrate the circumcision of one of their sons. It was literally a circumcision party. And they went. And a question came up as they were talking. They said, well, why don't Christians demand that their sons be circumcised? Wasn't, wasn't Jesus who you follow a Jew? And if he was a Jew, why didn't he command his people to keep circumcised? Because that's what the law that Jesus came from, being a Jew, that's what the law says. That's what the Old Testament says. Did Jesus start a new religion? Or was he kind of continuing that religion but kind of like brushed off some parts of it? What happened here? So we may think that these issues of circumcision and, and ethnicity and things like this are not in anyone's minds today. That's not true. This is still relevant. We may think that the things we believe are just a matter of course, but to the rest of the world, being saved by works is the default. Most of the people you know believe that if there is such a thing of salvation, if there is such a thing as an afterlife, they're gonna have to earn it by their good works. That's what most of the people you know believe. That is the default in this world. It is not the default in this world to believe that, oh, I just I hope God has mercy on me and, and even no matter what I've done, I'll be okay. That is not the default. Faith being the way through to salvation is not the default in this world. This conversation in Acts 11 is just as relevant today as it always has been. And telling people who believe that being saved by works is the default, is the way that it is, about a salvation that is given freely by grace, grace through faith in, is truly good news to them. It is good news that I don't have to earn my salvation, but it's costly news that all that I've done to be righteous has no merit in God's eyes. Some people have lived their whole lives living by a creed, by a way of living, by obeying laws and rules, thinking that it is earning them a place in God's house. And to tell them it doesn't is a major loss. What did I do all that for then? You're telling me all of my good works don't earn me anything with God. I don't want to believe that. I've wasted my time if that's true. It is good news, but for so many, it's costly good news. And so this good news that we teach, which is old news to us, is still new news to so many. And so it's important that we have an answer for what we believe, my friends. The depth of what Jesus accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. It is so important that we understand this. Or else when people ask, why do you believe what you believe? We will have no answer and no way to tell them from a place of deep understanding why this is good news. That by living a life that satisfied all the requirements of the law and then dying in our place, those who didn't follow the law, Jesus fulfilled the law of God on our behalf. And so now that law, which was, 
written in stone on tablets is no longer needed because those who trust Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the law of God, the law of love, is written on our hearts. That's what Jeremiah says. Friends, in the Old Testament, the law that was given, it has served its purpose for mankind. It showed us how sinful we are. And it showed us that we could never obey God's law by our own merit. If you want to look more into this, read the book of Galatians, study it deeply. It explains why the law is no longer in effect for those who trust in Jesus. And so when Jesus came, the law handed the baton to him, and he did what the law could never do. The law cannot make you righteous. It can only show you that you are not. So Paul says in Galatians, it is now believing loyalty in Jesus that attaches us to Jesus so that his life, his death, his resurrection become our righteousness, his in our place. And the good news doesn't just stop at Jesus saving us from our sins. The good news also is about our adoption into the family of God. This is part of the gospel. Part of the good news is that we are adopted into the family of God. Jesus had said to his Jewish disciples, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, before Peter's experience with Cornelius, who did Peter believe that you to be? Jews who had trusted in Jesus. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter, in essence, heard you Jewish Christians will receive the Holy Spirit, and so did many others. But when the Holy Spirit fell on these believing Gentiles without the law, just as he did on believing Jews, this gave a deep sense of clarity to what Jesus had said when he said, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Peter's mind, that narrow view of you in this moment became a very wide you, you all. Jews, Gentiles alike will be filled with the Holy Spirit, not just Jewish believers, all who believe. That small, narrow you got blown up and a very new, amazing, wide you was given. In a moment, us Jews and them Gentiles became we as a family of God. At least in Peter's mind it did. And apparently, the evidence and story he gave was so overwhelming because I love the humble response of those who had been critical of Peter. Look at verse 18. These are the exact same people who had criticized Peter for eating with Gentiles. Look what it says. When they, the critics, heard these things, they fell silent. They stopped their arguing and they stopped their critique. But not only that, keep reading. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They worshiped that God had opened the doors wide to all who would believe. How beautiful and humble. It is not ethnicity or class or lineage or associations or good works that brings salvation. It is faith in Jesus alone. And the implications of this are monumental. The family of Jesus is not defined by who we choose, but whom God has chosen. We don't get to choose who our brothers and sisters are. Our Father does. 
This is a profound moment in the life of Jesus' church. The implications should never be overlooked. And I want to point out two major implications. These are those two streams we were talking about. The first implication, the first stream is this. The power of the gospel of Jesus. When a man, woman, or child puts their faith, their believing loyalty, as one scholar phrased it, when a man, woman, or child puts their believing loyalty, their faith in Jesus, they are immediately forgiven, cleansed, saved, and become God's adopted son or daughter. This is the greatest news the human race has ever received. But not only that, according to this passage, when a person of any ethnicity, socioeconomic status, religious background, or the various ways we are enslaved to sin is forgiven and becomes an adopted child of God, they become my brother and my sister. Your brother, your sister. This is not just a metaphor. Metaphorically, my brother or sister, no. Really, truly, brother and sister in Christ Deeper than being related by blood. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you come from. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic place you come from. It doesn't matter what sin pattern you come from. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are my family. Immediately, irrevocably, eternally. The moment I gain a heavenly father, I also gain a heavenly family. Deeper than blood. The truth that this passage is heralding in no uncertain terms is that salvation comes by God's sovereign mercy through faith alone in Jesus. And that faith in Jesus breaks all the man-made barriers between us and makes us family with all who share the heavenly father. People don't get to declare each other as clean or unclean. People don't get to declare others as worthy or unworthy of the gospel of Jesus. We watch Jesus save people, and we welcome them into the family without distinction. No favorites, no inequality, just brothers and sisters. That also is the gospel. Not just that we are saved to God, but we are saved into a family. It is core to the gospel. The second implication, that second stream that we see underlying this whole chapter is about unity. By the power of God's word and the work, the confirming work of the Holy Spirit, God's church can be one, unified, and thrive in and through misunderstanding, confusion, questioning, and disagreement. Disagreement, confusion, Questions, things gone unanswered, do not have to cause division. In fact, they can cause greater unity. I don't think this story of Peter's actions and then the critique that followed came from a, a dark spot in the church's history. I think it's beautiful. Peter stepped outside of the separation that Jewish people had observed by the command of the law of God in the Old Testament to keep themselves pure from other religions, he stepped outside and crossed that line that they had been obeying for over a millennia. 
That's not insignificant. And he had every right to step over that line because God told him to. But these Jewish followers of Jesus also had every right to ask people why, Peter, why he seemed to be disobeying the law. Their critique doesn't seem to have come from hard hearts as much as a lack of information, a lack of understanding what God was doing. Notice Peter's response to the critique. He didn't say, hey, when will you ignorant people ever learn? Did he? Because he was ignorant just a week or two earlier. Did Peter say, do you know who you're talking to? I'm the apostle Peter, the right reverend Peter. Why are you questioning me? You do what I say. Is that what Peter did? Not at all. Not at all. No, he respectfully submits to the questions of his church family. He doesn't pull rank. And he gives an account for the work of God. He submitted to the questions of even those he was leading. And Peter draws their attention to the words of Jesus and to the work of the Holy Spirit. He appeals to the Father's revelation of truth through Jesus, which is then confirmed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, not only notice what Peter did and how he responded so graciously, notice the response of the critics. Notice that the critics were not afraid to ask Peter in the first place. They felt the freedom to say, I'm not sure what you did was okay. And then they did. But then they let the word of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit change their mind and change their heart. I don't know many people today who readily change their mind or change their heart. I struggle with it. But when the word of God is brought to bear and the Holy Spirit confirms it by his work, we must be a people who are so ready to change our mind and change our heart. We don't get to define truth, God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit attesting to his word gets to say what is true. And when we come into conflict with what God has shown to be true, we don't ask him to change, we change. Our minds and our hearts. But not only did these used to be critics changed their minds, they glorified God for the very thing that they had initially criticized Peter for. Do you see how big of a twist this is? Not only did they say, okay, Peter, we're not mad at you anymore. They worshiped, they glorified God because of what God had done. Not only changed mind and changed heart, but they turned disagreement into worship. Because of the Word of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the humility of God's people, conflict resolved in worship. That gives me goosebumps. Because in most human relationships, conflicts, conflict resolves in separation. Conflict resolves in anger, unforgiveness, bitterness. I can't be with you anymore. But in the early church, we see a beautiful picture of conflict resolving in them worshiping God together for what he's doing in the world, despite the differences they had had at first. So no, this chapter is not a dark spot in the Bible or the history of the early church. This seems to me like a beautiful model of unity for the family of God to follow, for you and I to see and follow. So here's what we need to do. 
As disciples of Jesus, we are called to continue the tradition of line crossers that Jesus started. We are called to see the human-made lines of division that we're not supposed to cross because our culture or maybe our religion or whatever it was told us we're not supposed to cross. We're supposed to see those lines, and if God does not confirm those lines, we are called to break right through them, step over, and take the gospel to whoever would receive it. We must continue the tradition of line crossing that God has continually had his people on. The reason you know Jesus if you do is because someone crossed a line to tell you. And it goes all the way back to God first crossing a line of Jesus becoming a man and living and dying for our sin. We follow a long line of line crossers. Another thing, if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, you haven't stepped off of that sinking sand ground of trying to earn your own salvation onto the solid rock of Jesus and believing in him and trusting in him and following him and that that is your salvation. Don't wait. Today is the day. Now is the time. And if you need to give your life to Jesus, I wanna invite you that after the service is concluded, there's gonna be people up here for prayer and I want you to come forward. We wanna talk to you about that. Second thing we must do, church, family, we must learn from our brothers and sisters in the early church who lovingly and respectfully worked through disagreements and friction, led by the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. When God adopts new children into his family, what kind of family will they be brought into? What kind of family is this? Is it one that is marked by strife and infighting and critique and unforgiveness? Is that the kind of family God is bringing new adopted sons and daughters into? That they get adopted right into a dysfunctional family who can't even get along? Is that the kind of family God wants to bring his new sons and daughters into? Or when a new son or daughter is adopted by God, are they brought into a family that is marked by deep love, forgiveness, unity, and humility in places where we disagree? Because that's not what we experience out in the world, is it? We experience strife, and I better toe the line and agree with everything that everyone else says or else in our world. What a beautiful thing to be brought out of that into a family that says, you know, we can disagree and still love each other. We can have issues and still love each other, and by God's word and the Holy Spirit leading us, we can work through it, and it can end up with us worshiping God together. That's a family I wanna be a part of. That's a family the world wants to be a part of. So I wanna ask you a question, because this is so important. Is there anyone in the family of God that you are angry with? that you have unsettled tension or grievance against for the sake of love for each other, for the sake of obedience to God, and for the sake of the integrity of Jesus' gospel, go to them and be reconciled. It's not optional. It strikes at the heart of the gospel 
that we are not only brought into unity with Christ, but immediately, as we're adopted, brought into unity with each other. And if we want our gospel message to be genuine, we must do the hard things of approaching each other when there's grievance or unforgiveness. We're gonna take communion together this morning. And I wanna give you time to reflect. And there's two suggestions I wanna make for your time of reflection. And I, let, I want you to let the Lord lead you into which one ever it is. The first reflection would be this. Take time to reflect on the greatness of Jesus' gospel, that you are saved not by your own merit, but you are saved completely through the mercy of God by faith in Jesus. That you are saved by nothing that you do, but by what Jesus has done. That would be a wonderful way to spend the next few minutes thanking him and remembering. If you don't have one of these communion cups, there should be some in the back. Go grab one. You can also come up here and grab one. There's plenty right up here. The second thing I want you to consider and ask the Lord about is this, when you're taking communion. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns us about receiving the Lord's Supper in what he calls an unworthy manner. I think we tend to look at that and say, okay, is there any sin that I haven't asked for forgiveness? Is there anything I need to get right with God? Is there any rebellion in my spirit that I need to get over? And I, that very well may be part of that and probably is part of that context. But the main context that Paul sets up when he says eating communion in an unworthy manner, the main context of unworthiness in this passage is what Paul calls in verse 18 as divisions among you. Read it. Don't trust me. Go to 1 Corinthians 11 and read it. He says, I don't have anything good to say about you coming to the Lord's table because when you do, there are divisions among you. And then he goes on to talk about eating in an unworthy manner. And that's why many are sick and dying, by the way. Don't take my word for it. Read it yourself. Here's why that's important. It's so important for us when we take communion to understand that not only who we have been unified to God through, faith in Jesus. We, we're not just unified to God, but this symbolizes that we're unified together. I believe that it's of immense importance that, that we also are walking in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ so as not to participate in an unworthy manner. If I have unforgiveness in my heart and I take this and I'm not willing to go to them and be reconciled first, I believe that is a part of eating and drinking this in an unworthy manner. I believe that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11. So here, this is a little hard. This is a little bit of an ask. I pray you're brave enough to consider this and hear what God says. I'm gonna urge you that if you have unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister in Jesus, don't participate in this today. This cup and this bread is only for those who have put their faith in Jesus. It's not just a, a, a you know, cracker and juice. It is a symbol. It is a real experience of something bigger. And so only those who are unified with Jesus by faith should take this. But also, we shouldn't take it in an unworthy manner. And if, if you have unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ, I wanna encourage you, push pause on taking this today. And if they're in the room, or on campus, go to them and first be reconciled. If they're not, push pause on taking this today. As you're on your way out, grab another one. 
and go to that brother or sister, or if you need to grab five of them because there's five people you, you hate, go to them first, reconcile with them, and then have communion together as a symbol that not only you are unified with your father, but you're unified with them. I know that's a big ask, but I believe that's what scripture is asking of us. And then having done all that is in your power to be at peace with one another, come back next week and take communion from the joyous posture of your life, genuinely reflecting what we do when we gather at the Lord's table together, genuinely reflecting it. So I want you to close your eyes at this moment. I want you to pray. I want you to ask God to reveal to you which one of those should I just be here in a moment of thanking you for your sacrifice and all that it's done for me? Or Father, is there anyone who's in the body of Christ, a brother or sister in Christ, that I must be reconciled to? And so I need to pause on this. Just take some time in the quiet and let the Lord speak to you. And then we'll, those of us who are gonna take communion, we'll take it. And, and we will thank God for it. So just spend some moments in silence asking the Lord what he's saying to you. We're gonna take communion right now. And if, if you know that you need to be reconciled with someone, just hold that communion in your hand. And as we take it, don't feel shame. This has nothing to do with shame. This is not works. This is not shame. This is fully seated in grace that grace has been given to us. Forgiveness has been given to us and God intends for it to flow through us to others. So hold on to that and thank God for his grace. And thank God that he's shown you a person you need to be reconciled to. And thank him that there is unity, there can be unity and forgiveness and reconciliation because of what Jesus did for us. Don't let this be a wasted time if you're not gonna take this. But for those who feel that they can take this, let's take the bread. And remember that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed said, this is my body. When you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. And let's take this and eat it. And Jesus said, with the cup, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink this cup together. Jesus, all gratitude and all honor and all glory to you for what you've done for us in the cross and the resurrection and in your ascension to the right hand of the Father, having been given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. Jesus, King, Jesus, High King of heaven, use that power and authority in our lives so that we, through the power of your spirit, would obey you, would reconcile, and would take your gospel to the world who needs it. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.